I'm really excited to introduce my guest to you today. He's the founder and CEO of UniRise, the co-host of the High Performance for Lazy People podcast, and is on a mission to help students from all backgrounds get into their dream university. Please welcome my guest, Oliver Rutherford. I'm keen to ask you what you think is going to happen with universities in the future. Are they even going to exist? Are they all going to shut down? Is it all going to be online? Like, what's what's your opinion? Yeah. So I think, firstly, anyone who thinks they know is probably wrong. Um, I think it's super complex, like most things. And, you know, I actually, in 2012, when MOOCs were getting big, you know, like Coursera and like HarvardX, I was like, oh, my God why universities are going to die in five years because you can do it and like youtube i would go on youtube and like type in stanford and learn physics from like richard Feynman and be like why do unis exist and i was wrong um the completion rate of the average mooc is like four to six percent and i mean they're great but they don't at all replace university university enrollment is actually increasing globally um i think a couple of trends are going to happen in the short term um, the first is um, moving away from disciplines and towards a more interdisciplinary approach. So a new university that my friend started called the London Interdisciplinary School has no subjects. Um, these kind of arbitrary disciplines between like economics and politics, where they're basically kind of trying to study the same things. And instead you focus on studying a problem that transcends disciplinary boundaries. So it might be like how to stop COVID or it might be free speech or how to build smart cities or how to uh, solve malaria. And then students go and speak to disciplinary experts to get the relevant knowledge and then work with a company in an internship to, to leverage what they've learned to solve problems and get work experience. So I think moving away from disciplines is, is one trend um, that I think should happen and will happen and is starting to happen. Um, I think the second thing is also moving away from um, I don't know if you heard of Lambda School, and actually recently they've had some negative press and I haven't looked into it enough, but instead of students having to pay 9,000 or however many thousand in America, um, it's free. And then if you earn over $50,000 for two years, you pay back 17% of your income. So what that does, it's they're called income share agreements and it flips the incentives. So the onus is on the university to deliver you a high quality education. And if you end up um, earning that much, you know, you will then pay for it. a bit like the English system, but but kind of better. Um, and that also makes it way more accessible because it means students who can't afford fees are, are more able to apply. And there's no like interest rates like there are with the UK. They just increased my interest rates to like 7% without telling me. And I'm just like, what the hell is going on? Um, so I think that's the second thing. I think if you think about the value that universities offer, the first thing is um, social status, like signaling. It's a signaling mechanism. It's like, I have this degree from this university, therefore, this is a signal of my intelligence and hard work. Um, the second thing is the knowledge itself. Like, I know these things. And the third thing is the community. And there isn't really much more that current universities have to offer. And then if we look at COVID now with all of these platforms and and um, groups like On Deck and Transcend Fellowship, et cetera. You can have amazing communities online, uh, cohort-based communities where you meet with your team every week and like you're on Slack and you're all engaging. So the community aspect of universities, I think is, is starting to uh, be recognized as less powerful. Um, the second aspect was the knowledge itself. And again, knowledge you can get from anywhere. And actually, if you go on YouTube, there's probably someone better teaching you that particular thing than like your particular professor at your particular university. 
and then with the signaling aspect of um, universities, I think, I mean, um, 86% of employers now don't care what you studied. A lot of the big guys like PwC, EY, they actually don't have degrees as a requirement anymore because they noticed that there wasn't a difference between the quality of uh, employees who had a degree and who didn't have a degree. So that, and also because everyone has a degree and now everyone has a master's, the sync, there's like a huge saturation of the signaling mechanism of universities. And I think we're going to move towards a much more micro accreditation space, which we're going to try and do in UniRise, where it's like, you can do three months of this particular course in corporate finance and LSE. And then you can do two months of like Spanish at the University of Cape Town, because there's a great teacher there. And then you can do a three month course on happiness with UniRise. Um, and, you know, you can kind of pick and mix whatever you want to study. And rather than like graduating after three years, again, massive social construct you're just a lifelong learner and you just pick up degrees and they're all accredited on the blockchain and that's just how people will live their lives but i also might be completely wrong about all of that <laughs> so you decided off university that consulting and finance wasn't the route that you wanted to go down obviously besides unirise you're now working as a global university advisor what what's that all about do you like have to consult universities or yeah, so that, so that was kind of um, when I was at Aula, which was essentially trying to, you know, you've got these virtual learning environments like Blackboard or Moodle or Canvas, and they're super old school and boring and clunky. We thought, well, if we've got TikTok and Facebook and Slack and, you know, Instagram, why can't we use that kind of social mobile first technology that's native to Gen Z in the education space? So you're working with universities to build a completely different core digital teaching and learning infrastructure and a lot of my role there was working with like senior leadership of universities um, be that in the US or the UK and helping them think about their like 20 or 30 year digital strategy um, which was interesting and also quite depressing because often they would just say to me Oli like let's do AI and I was like uh, what do you mean let's do AI and they're like oh let's do some blockchain and I'm like what do you mean do some blockchain so if like the top of people at universities are asking me these kinds of questions it's quite a bleak outlook, I think, on the future of universities. So obviously I checked you guys out and I mean, I saw that it's free. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's also been interesting because like uh, there are some free source resources out there and often, not always, often the quality is compromised because if it's free, you know, it's done you know, often not as much effort and love into it. Having said that, there's a lot of like sharks in this space where they will charge students tens of thousands of pounds and, you know, it, it gets like really unethical really quickly. So for us, it's particularly because of the kind of school I taught at, as soon as we start charging, then the students who need it the most aren't able to access it, which kind of defeats the purpose of, of why we started UniRise, to make uh, high quality education accessible for everyone, whether you're homeless or whether you're a billionaire. So it is free for students. Um, commercially we have two sources of revenue one is schools have reached out to us saying actually can you work with all of our students and we'll pay you so that your team can like review their personal statements and can give them guidance and things like that that happened between september and january which is cool uh, we're moving a bit away from that and we're now focusing on universities universities have huge budgets and often um, struggle to recruit students particularly internationally um, so with a kind of traction that we have on our platform the trust that we have we'll be working with universities so that they can um, for example make really targeted ads to students on our platform so if you're a student and you put in that you really value social life 
and you really want to be somewhere by the sea, then a university that has a particularly good social life and is by the sea will be able to kind of say, hey, like, do you want to join this webinar or something like that? Um, so that's how we're going to commercialize it going forward. It's really important for me that it's not the students who pay, despite them getting like a crazy amount of um, resources and guidership and, and mentorship all for free. So it definitely sounds like having your platform be accessible to people from any background is a key thing for your company. Does that then mean that you think that university should be free as well? Um, do I think that university should be free? I read this amazing um, Twitter storm thread thing from this amazing woman who um, tore apart this notion that university should be free. And I can't remember her points, but I'll send it to you afterwards. You can pop it in the show notes. I don't actually think that university should be free because ultimately it's not free. Someone's paying for it. And if you look at the economics, it's often like low earning people um, or like relatively low to average earning people who actually end up paying for people who go to university who are typically more privileged people anyway. So when you invert it, in some countries where it's free, it's actually people earning the median wage, subsidizing really rich kids who didn't pay for university um, in, in, in at least some Western countries. I quite like the approach of having the onus on universities to ensure that their students get um, jobs if they want that, that are high paying to almost justify the investment of a degree and then taking a small proportion of that salary, whether it's 10% or 15% for two years. That doesn't always work. And there are some complexities with like the, the uh, unit economics of income share agreements. But for me, the incentives are a lot more aligned there, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I was, I was just curious because um, it's quite a big topic of discussion in South Africa because there were a lot of sort of protests, student protests a couple of years ago here in Cape Town. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's maybe different because ultimately for me, the bottom line is forget free or not free because like there's no such thing as free because it's paid for by the taxpayer, right? There should be no barriers to someone going to university. And I think there are different ways of doing that. One option is for to make it free, but that comes with an opportunity cost. Um, there are other options where it can be free in the short term and then it's paid back once you're earning a certain amount. Um, but I don't believe that, like I was living in America and I, all my Uber drivers had three part-time jobs so that they could fund their $40,000 a year college degree in some like random degree that I'd never heard of. And I remember thinking, this is totally screwed up. That should not be the case. I just don't think that free is always the right solution or the only solution. So I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every single guest that comes on the show. What kind of advice do you have for a student or anyone really looking to start up their own company or even just a, you know, a project or, or a non-profit thing during this very bizarre time? There's so much to say here. I think what I did at university was a couple of things that really helped me. The first thing is that I just treated everything as an experiment. So every summer I was like, I'm going to, I have a hypothesis that I'm interested in digital marketing. I'm going to test this hypothesis by doing an internship at a digital marketing firm. I'm then going to like get mentors from that space, learn about it loads, grow as a person, and then reflect on it and ask myself questions to figure out if I like that. Reflect on it. Okay, I didn't like doing all this like annoying SEO, CRO stuff, but I did like talking to clients. Okay, new hypothesis. Maybe I want to go into sales. Okay, let's go on LinkedIn. Let's DM like a hundred people with a personalized um, uh, DM. I've written a blog on how to like send really good um, outreach messages so that people actually 
like end up talking to you. So again, I'll, I'll link that to you that you can share. So that I, I think this notion of testing different hypotheses, like you do as a CEO or as an entrepreneur in a startup, you have a hypothesis and before you scale it, you need to like nail it before you scale it. Um, so I think that's the first thing and that helps you build self-awareness. So you graduate having done a ton of things. None of this I'm going to apply with my CV and cover letter and cross my fingers. No, like reach out to people, go to meetups, like test your elevator pitch to entrepreneurs work for free like do whatever you have to do um obviously sometimes you can't always work for free um but in order to get that experience i think the second thing is like who you're surrounding yourself with i was really lucky at uni to just surround myself with the most insanely smart and curious people who have now gone on to do like ridiculous things um and they without them i'm not sure i would have um had the courage to reject offers from companies like Goldman Sachs or like Accenture or, you know, Bain or whatever, because most people would die to do that kind of thing. But because one of my friends like, I'm going to start a crypto fund, which is now worth 500 million. And my other one's like, I'm going to start uh, like an anti-human trafficking foundation, which is now like the biggest anti-human trafficking thing in like South and Central America. That was what I surrounded myself with, um, which gave me the courage to go against what, like societal indoctrinization would, would normally have me do. Um, and then I think the final thing is that I get used to being rejected. So I would always send like an email every week to someone like Obama or uh, someone really cool and ask them to get on a call. And like three out of a hundred times they would say yes, which is really cool because I got to meet people like Daniel Kahneman and like a lot of like, well, not a lot, but a handful of really high profile people who are now like mentors. But life is basically a series of rejections. Um, so if you can get used to being rejected um, and you can make it fun, like we would like, as a joke, propose to someone on the on London Underground and make it funny and make videos about it. Then when you get into the real world, that fear of being rejected just completely goes and you can just completely hustle. And, and I think you're much more likely to be successful with that kind of attitude. A huge thanks to Oliver Rutherford for joining me here on the Founders House podcast today. Did you know that universities base up to 80% of their decision on your personal statement? So if you're listening to this and you're a student, check out www.unirise.co.uk and take their perfect statement course. It's everything that you need to write the perfect personal statement and make your best UCAS choices and get into your dream university. So if you're out there right now in the summer holidays looking to apply for September, go check them out because they'll help you all the way. Once again, I'm your host, Milan Earhart. I'll see you next time.